epistle lesson is found in Ephesians chapter 1. We are reading verses 1 through 14 this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Oof, that is no way to properly send me out. Um, and so we'll ride that, we'll try that again, all right? Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. There we go, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. It is your truth. You have revealed it to us. And it's by your spirit that you grant us understanding. It is your spirit who seals our hearts and teaches us and instructs us in all the works and the ways that belong to you. You've revealed yourself to us in your son. And we ask this morning that you would teach us these things once again and renew us as to all that is ours in your son, Jesus. Write these benefits upon our heart. May they fill our minds. May they be our meditation. We ask that you speak, that you speak Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, as a new resident in the state of Florida, I was introduced to the natural springs that spread across our state. And these weren't just isolated springs. I was quickly to learn that I hadn't just, I had visited one, but there were over 700 of these. I had no clue, I was new to everything, and that this is more springs than anywhere else on earth. Now, it's interesting, when you start to look into it, you discover that these springs are fed by a massive 800 billion gallon aquifer <laughs> that lies underneath the state of Florida. Uh, a spring is simply a location where the pressure from the aquifer pushes the water up through the limestone and it comes gushing out. This is not a small gush, it's rather lavish, Hundreds of thousands of gallons per day, over a billion per year flowing through these 700 natural springs. Filled with abundance, the aquifer overflows. 
And friends, when we come to the book of Ephesians, to this short letter by the Apostle Paul, we encounter that same reality. That there, behind this letter, we have the being of God filled with abundance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overflowing. That we have something effusive happening here. That from the being of God himself, there is something that overflows and there is a corresponding response. And we find here in verses 3 through 14 in particular, something volcanic happening in the Apostle Paul as he praises and blesses God. But we see very clearly in verse 3 why he praises and blesses God. It's because he has been blessed by God. We praise and bless because we have been blessed. We have encountered the grace of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we turn and bless or praise God, and we love him because we've been induced to do so by the knowledge of the benefits that belong to us in Jesus. Calvin captures it well. He says, Paul extols sublimely the grace of God towards the Ephesians to rouse their hearts to gratitude, to set them all aflame, to occupy and fill them with this thought. And this is what Calvin understood, that any church vitality, that any spiritual renewal will never be separated from the knowledge of the benefits that are ours in Jesus, that we can never step away from that. That Jesus is the fuel that supplies the engine, that Jesus is the fund that stimulates the economy, that this is the way that the church operates. And so through the course of the summer, we will dwell richly on our, all that is ours in Jesus so that we be renewed and reinvigorated, so that we be vitalized in our life with God. But the critical question for us to ask and to answer this morning as we begin is what exactly are the things that we are to dwell upon? What is it that stimulates our life with God? And there's four things here in Ephesians 1 that we see that we're encouraged to dwell on. We're encouraged to dwell on, first, the origin of our salvation. We'll see, secondly, that we're encouraged to dwell on, actually, the author of our salvation as well. Third, we'll see that we're encouraged to dwell on the channel of that salvation, and finally, the goal of the salvation. So let's give our attention to each of those this morning. First, we are to dwell on the origin of our salvation. In verses 3 through 5, the volcano begins to explode with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so it's important to note here that Paul begins, he begins informing us about the benefits that are ours in Jesus by looking back. And he looks back into the eternal counsels of God. He doesn't simply look back inside the time of his own life. He doesn't simply look back to the time inside of Jesus' life. He looks back all, all the way into the mysterious counsel of God. And what he sees there is that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world for a certain purpose that we'd be holy and blameless before him. And then he explains further that in love, he predestined us for adoption. 
And so that God actively did something on our behalf, singling us out, setting us apart for his own purposes, and he did so out of his own love. Now, many people, when they encounter this teaching, they find that talk and the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, they feel like it is a dark maze, a labyrinth of some sort, and that it's just simply better left alone because it can't be understood, and it's also divisive inside of Christian communities. And so why would a pastor, especially a pastor about to leave on sabbatical, want to talk about these things? Why would we get into it? if it causes so many problems, if it's hard to understand. But it's important for us to see that Paul doesn't share our opinion, that he doesn't operate according to the wisdom and the measures that we often use, but rather what he sees here and what he presses upon us is that he presents to us the eternal goodness and favor of God, that he sees in the knowledge of what God has done in electing and predestinating what some would frown at. He sees as a great source of joy that this is a deep benefit, that it is the effusive grace of God and the free grace of God that's been given to us. And that to shrink away from this subject, to say, well, we just don't understand it, therefore let's not deal with it, that Paul would say this would be ingratitude because it has been revealed to us. And God has given us this knowledge in order to bless us. Even if we can't understand everything about his works and ways, that this knowledge is to be the source of doxology, it is to be the source of praise, it definitely shouldn't be the source of being frozen and chosen. It should be the source of the most exuberant joy and thanksgiving that the church can muster up. But how exactly does this doctrine then of predestination and election encourage us to praise God? There's two things that we see here very clearly. And the first is that the timing of our election, that is the timing of God's choice of us, demonstrates that that choice is free. See, in verse 4, it explains to us that it was before the foundations of the world. That is, before the world had been brought forth. That is before you existed, before God had created you. And it presses us with the question, prior to your being created, what had you deserved? What had you earned? What had you merited? And the resounding answer is nothing. Nothing. That God in his own love, in accord with his own counsel, chose you. This is not speaking of a corporate group. It's speaking very personally. They had an intimate and relational knowledge of you, and he singled you out for this blessing. He gave that to you. That we have done done nothing to deserve it. We've done nothing to achieve it. That God didn't look at any virtue that belonged to us and decide to give it to us. That prior to the foundations of the world, he simply gives that gift. But secondly, we also see that the source of our election demonstrates that it's also free. Because that source is located in one person. You'll notice in verse 4 and 5, it's repeated that we've been getting every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so once again, we have it emphasized 
that because of the source, the source is none other than Jesus. This is the source of our election, that it's in Jesus that we've been chosen and we've been predestined to be God's children, to be brought into God's family. And so once again, it's not dependent and reliant upon you. There is something external, Jesus, that makes this decision. And friends, this highlights for us the freedom of God's grace, that we were not deserving, that we were not worthy, that God has done it for us out of his own goodwill, in accord with his own pleasure, out of his love, and he's done it in and through Jesus. And Paul is pressing us to the conclusion that we do not bring anything to the life of salvation. We have nothing to contribute except the sin that makes it necessary. That is your major contribution. And so congratulations, because God has freely accomplished it for you. You don't have anything to contribute. I don't have anything to offer. It's not about what we've achieved. It's about God's decision. And it's about what God has decided through his son, Jesus. And so this is the first thing that we're to dwell upon, is the origin of this salvation. No matter how mysterious, we're not to neglect it. We're to delight in it, that God has chosen you. He has made you his own through Jesus. But secondly, we're also to dwell on the author of this salvation. As the Bible unfolds, there is a progressive revelation of the one true God. He is the God who makes all things. He is the God who sustains all things by the word of his power. We learn that he rules over all the ends of the earth, and we also know that he intends to restore all things. But in the pages of the Old Testament, it is as if we are in a finely furnished and decorated room, but we only see that room by candlelight. But then in the revelation of Jesus, that finely decorated room becomes fully illumined. And we find out here and we learn here as Jesus comes onto the scene, not simply about the plan of God for salvation. We actually learn about God himself. That this one God, we learn that he's triune, that he is father, that he is son, that he is Holy Spirit. These three who are yet one. And Paul in Ephesians 1 explodes this mystery in front of us. We find out in verse 3 of this Father who plans our salvation and blesses us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then further in verse 5, we see there that he predestined us for this adoption. And then further in verse 8, we learn that he lavished on us uh, the insight of the wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That this is the work of the Father on our behalf. And so we see very clearly the Father at work. But we also see the Son. In verse 7, the Son is executing this salvation. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That Jesus comes into the world in time to make atonement for us. That our sins would be forgiven. Then in verse 13, we see that he finishes the divine being, the Spirit. And it is the Spirit there who seals our redemption to us. He comes and illumines our hearts and our minds, giving us the truth we'll see next week down in further in chapter 1. But the Spirit unites us to the Son and applies the truth of the gospel to our lives. And friends, this is the God that we are invited to commune with. 
that through Jesus, the true and living Son, we are adopted. By the Spirit, we're united to Jesus, and then we're brought into Jesus' communion with his Father. That's the design of Christian salvation, that it involves each of the persons of the Trinity. And this is the wonder that God has brought you into by choosing you and electing you and predestining you. And what's critical for us is to know this God himself, to know exactly who he is, and to not get just lost in the benefits. But sometimes we can be overwhelmed by just all the wonderful things that are ours, the gifts like justification and sanctification, the gifts of glorification, and we are, yes, to ruminate on those. But we don't want to neglect the giver of those gifts themselves because he has revealed himself to us. And so we dwell on the author of the salvation as well. Third, we're to dwell on the channel of salvation. If you follow in verses 5 through 7, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And then once again in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Eleven times in this passage, we are told that it's in him, in the beloved, in whom, in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And when Paul repeats himself in this way, and in the original, this is one massive run-on sentence. Mrs. Cox, my sixth grade grammar teacher, would not approve. But it is this effusive praise in which he's directing us to the channel who accomplishes salvation for us, who executes it. Yes, the Father has planned and predestined and elected, But the Son comes in the fullness of time and he executes salvation by going to the cross and then by rising from the dead. And it is in him that all of our attention is to be drawn to, that we are adopted into the family because the Son has given himself for us and he's been vindicated. And in God's presence now he mediates for us and represents us. And so we can come before the throne of God because Jesus is there. It's exclusive but he includes all who look to him in faith. And so, yes, we focus upon Jesus, the channel of all of this salvation. Friends, no renewal process, no church growth strategy, no church planning movement is genuine, nor is it real when Christ is not sitting there at the center of it. That when we neglect him, we neglect the very word of God and what the Apostle Paul draws us to in this passage. That it is in the beloved, it is in him that we have all of this inheritance, that we have all of this spiritual blessedness in the heavenly places, that it's only in Jesus. About a decade ago, one of my close friends, a pastor in Washington, D.C., was planting a church and it was difficult for them to find space to meet and so they met in the evening. And there was another church down the street, and the pastor was walking by while the worship service was ongoing. And he could hear the effusive praise coming from the building. And it wasn't just because the band was loud and turned up, but rather the congregation was responding. And so he walks in, 
And what he sees is a congregation of young adults. And so he got my friend's contact information and brought him over to his office. And he said, we've hired consultants to help us because our church is dying. The church had long left orthodoxy many years ago, but they were interested in continuing on and perpetuating their life. They said, we want to know how to attract young adults. So what is it that you're doing? My friend walked through the simple things that they did, and he said, well, we emphasize our beliefs. We emphasize our beliefs about the death of Jesus on our behalf, that that was a penal judgment that Jesus took on and accepted on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. And we emphasize Jesus' resurrection, that a physical body came up out of the grave, that God did something miraculous on Easter Sunday. And we emphasize that the Bible teaches us and guides us about what it means to flourish as a human being. And he said, and it's because of all that and because of the good news of these things and how God is delivering us from sin and what he's going to do in the future. That's why the young people are here. The fellow pastor looked at him just confused, didn't quite know what to think. He said, well, we don't believe any of that. So how can we get the young people and friends, this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy of where church can go. It can happen in conservative churches. It can happen in liberal churches. But Jesus is forgotten. But he is the one channel. It is in him, in the beloved, that we have all of these gifts, that the inheritance is ours. And so we do not move away from it. And Paul is pointing us that it is in that channel, in knowing Jesus. This is where this we are induced to praise and to give thanks to God. Finally, we're also to dwell on the goal of our salvation. If you follow in verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Apostle Paul has stretched back into the eternal counsels of God, and now he's stretching forward into the great future. And he's here speaking about God's plan to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth. And this is the great plan of God, not simply to whisk you away to heaven, but it's the great plan of God to come and to make heaven and earth one again. What was torn apart in human sin and fractured, God will once again unite and he will dwell with his people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that he'll bring healing to the sin-stained and polluted world, that our dead bodies will be raised, that the entire world will be renewed. This is where Paul is now directing us. That to praise God, we must also know about these great future benefits, the goal of salvation. That it's not harps and clouds, but rather it is the remade earth. Tom Wright helpfully captures it. He says, heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. That yes, when we die, we go to be with the Lord, Philippians 1. But that is not the forever place, that in Revelation, those saints who are with the Lord are in a holy complaint, and they're asking the question, how long, O Lord? How long? 
because there is a future expectation. And this is why Jesus got up from the dead. It's because he will return and he will bring you up out of the dead as well. That this is the goal. This is everything that God has for us in Jesus. As a young church planner, I was preaching on this passage in Ephesians 1, speaking about the great hope that we have of God uniting all things in heaven and on earth. After the sermon, there was a visitor there and she came straight for me, and that's always when you know you're in trouble. And she said, very critically, where did you go to seminary? She had learned not to trust pastors for many good reasons. Um, but where did you go to seminary? I have never heard what you're talking about today. And friends, that's the unfortunate thing. Some have heard of it and some have not, but many of us have settled for a sub-Christian and sub-biblical vision of the future. And Paul's encouragement to us here is to not put ourselves on a diet. Don't just settle for the harp and the cloud, though it is free from the pains of this present world, that God has things in store for you. Part of your inheritance is beyond what mind can imagine, beyond what sight can see. God restoring all things, God raising the dead, God making all things new, bringing healing to the nations, ending war and suffering, ending deprivation, ending poverty, making the world right and dwelling with his people, us communing with him and with one another in wholeness and freedom and peace. That's the goal. It's the great plan of God. That's the union of heaven and earth. And so my friend, to her credit, she went away and did some homework. She returned the next week, to my great surprise, with a new understanding. And that's the new understanding that God wants each of us to have. To know fully the inheritance that is ours. To run with it as far as our minds, our feeble minds, will allow us to. And so don't cheat yourself. Don't put yourself on a diet. Know the full buffet, the lavish buffet that's yours in Jesus. Spiritual renewal, the life of the church, the vitality of the church is known, is found in the knowledge of God's grace. All the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, it is that, that knowledge that induces us to love and praise God. And God isn't stingy with it. He's not just giving you a little appetizer. He hasn't just given you a little sampling. This grace is overflowing out of his abundance to you. He has given it to you. It's for you in Jesus. And our problem and our great struggle in all of our sinful weakness is that we give it too little attention. And so we have to interrogate ourselves this summer. We have to ask ourselves questions Particularly the question, what is it that we dwell on? What is it that we give our occupations to in our mind? Are we dwelling on the latest TV shows to be released on our favorite, favorite streaming services in order to escape the realities of life? Are we dwelling on shopping and purchases that we would like to make? Are we dwelling on our appearances, physical and social, preoccupied with what others think about us? Are we dwelling on the ways that life has not worked out for us, wallowing in our self-pity? Are we dwelling on the news cycle, fuming over cultural trends and political decisions? These are all things we're not forbidden to think about but they can also preoccupy and take over. And we have to ask ourselves, are we dwelling on the, rate, on the grace of God? 
richly dwelling upon these things in our hearts, knowing all that is ours, pressing further into those mysteries of the eternal counsel of God, even if hard to understand, saying, I'm going to take that up, pressing into the mysteries of the eternal future of creation healed and restored, pressing into understanding how Jesus offers atonement for us, pressing into what the Spirit does in bringing us to life. And so, friends, this is what we invite you to this summer, a summer of reinvigoration, of spiritual renewal, spiritual vitality and life. And the path through this, into this, is the grace of God and the knowledge of all of his benefits. And so delight yourselves there. Find a feast in that place. Let's ask God for his help to do so. Father, as we encounter this passage, it's filled with immense and profound things. They go beyond our ability to comprehend and understand, but yet we're also caught up. We're caught up in the great love and grace that you have poured out upon us that flows from you out of your own abundance. That in eternity you set us apart for yourself in Jesus. That this was an act of your love and you have made us your own in time. Jesus coming to atone for our sins and you sealing us by your spirit overwhelms us due to our unworthiness. It overwhelms us due to our sins. And we look to the great future the healing of all things. We know the sadness of our world, the pain that it bears. Day to day brings out further tragedy, and yet we have this great hope. And so God, induce us to praise, induce us to bless you as we know all that is ours in your son. We ask for his help, for your help, in Jesus' name, amen.